Come on in. Meg forgot to announce the most exciting thing of the whole day. Apart from the word, that's the most important thing. The second thing is food afterwards. This is Family Feast Sunday. So that's what all the food happening here is. We brought a lot of food. Um, we're going to be going to get fried chicken from Kroger. They're, they're frying it, probably not right now, but they will be in a few minutes. So it's going to be just super ready for us. We don't have to wait on it. We're just going to pick it up and bring it back. So everyone is expected and obligated to stay. No exceptions. Cancel your plans, whatever's going on. And uh, we're going we're gonna to eat right here. Um, after the service is done, we'll set up, and there's plenty of food. So hang around for that, all right? You guys have your, your Bibles. We're going to be in First Chronicles 11. Jonathan, this still has a little bit of weird kind of wah-wah coming out when I've shifted over. You just want to bring the whole level down, or what are you thinking? How's that? That's, it's a little bit better. I'm just going to have to shift this way. Okay. We're in First Chronicles chapter 11. Let me give you a little bit of a background to this. If you don't, if you, if you don't have a Bible or a device, we're going to try to get all of the, the, the text up here um, for the teaching this morning. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. It sounds dumb to say this. I'm a big fan of the Old Testament. Obviously, it's a word of God. Everybody should be big fans of the Old Testament. But I love history, especially um, and the Old Testament is full of not just theology, it's also full of history. And, and the more that sort of the science of archaeology um, progresses, the more we just discover all of these different um, things that just back up the Word of God. And it seems like with each generation, we're finding more and more things that validate what the Word says about culture and history. Um, so we're, we're looking at the story of, of, of part of the life of David this morning. Let me give you just a, a real quick snapshot of these chapters that we're in. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. Samuel is named after the prophet Samuel, who was very instrumental in the, in the early formation of the nation of Israel. Samuel was a prophet that anointed Saul to be king. You know, you remember that Israel wanted a king so badly. Uh, they had just come out of the period of the judges, and they were so desperate for a king, and their neighbors had a king, and they went to the prophet and said, please, and the prophet tried to, Samuel tried to warn them, you really don't want a king, trust me. And they said, no, we do. We really do, and we want that one, that guy over there who's super tall and super good looking. His name is Saul. So, of course, you know, anoint Saul to be king over Israel. Turns out to be just the worst possible king, um, and, and, of course, God has his eye on another young man named David. David was not like Saul. He was not the tallest and best looking. He was actually the youngest in his clan and pretty insignificant. Um, and in 1 Samuel, of course, Samuel tells the story of, of all of this. And by the time you get to chapter 16, David is anointed as king over Israel. He's not coronated. There's a difference. He's not coronated. He's not recognized in that position um, he doesn't sit on the throne and have authority, but he is anointed as king over, over Israel, despite Saul being, being there. And in chapter 17, there's a familiar story of David and Goliath. I love that story. It's one of the first ones that, 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 that those of us who grew up in Sunday school learn, you know. And Cohen's one of, one of his favorite songs that we sing at night is Only a Boy Named David. Anybody know that? That's old school, isn't it? Only a boy named David. Only... Okay, whatever. If you don't know it, ask Cohen. He'll sing it for you. And we even act it out. We'll stand up and we'll fall over to the ground like we're David and Goliath. Chapter 17. Chapters 18 and 19 are pretty significant. This is when Saul turns against David. Saul is in a jealous rage. He has a sort of this, it's almost, he's almost, possess, not possessed, but he is deeply influenced by demonic spirits to the point of just raging jealousy. 
In chapters 18 and 19, Saul just begins to turn and resist David. And they have this real strange relationship. Saul, David would often come and play music for him to calm uh, sort of this, this bitterness that's going on inside of him. And, and David would just, uh, Saul would just turn into a fit of rage and a fit of jealousy. And it says this in, in chapter 18, it says, Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. That sums it up right there. The Spirit of God had left Saul and had placed himself an anointing on David. And Saul knows this, and Saul is just tortured by this. And he becomes not just angry and jealous, he becomes violent. And he launches a campaign to wipe David out off the face of the earth. Chapter 20, David goes to Jonathan. Goes to Jonathan, and Jonathan is Saul's son, is a good friend of David. He says, David, what have I done? Tell me. He says this. He says, what have I done? What is my crime? Why is your father so bent on my destruction? Of course, you know, Jonathan's like, ah, nothing. I have no idea. And Jonathan and David are, are their, their kindred spirits. They're good friends. And, and Jonathan is, is committing, makes a covenant with David to help him and to stand with him. And he helps David sort of escape from the, the clutches, so to speak, of Saul. And in chapter 21, David flees to the nearby town of Nob. There's a lot of history this morning, so bear with me, but we're gonna, we're, I promise we're going to land the plane. He, flies, he flees to the nearby town of Nob. That's where the tabernacle is located. The city of Jerusalem has not been established yet as the capital. The temple has not been built. Um, so the tabernacle is currently located in the nearby town of Nob. And um, David goes there. He goes and he, and he, and he flees to this town um, under the care of Ahimelech, who is the high priest. And he's, and he's talking with Ahimelech, and Ahimelech sort of knows that David has this anointing, but David also discovers that Saul has spies in the area. So, so, so David also begins to flee farther west to the Philistine town of Gath. And here he discovers that his reputation as a rebel has preceded him. He gets to the Philistines, and the Philistines have heard all, everything about him. You know, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David goes, I can't be here. My reputation is already here. I've got to go somewhere else. So he flees back east, and here's the point. He, this time he goes to a region called Adullam. It's in, the, it's in the general area of Jerusalem. It's actually about 15 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And it's kind of on the border between the, the, the land of Judah and the land of the Philistines over here in the west. And Adullam is this hilly region kind of between the two. It's just you know, within a, within a day's walk or so of Jerusalem. And it's, of course, it's filled with rocky terrain and a lot of caves. And he goes into hiding and he makes this his stronghold. So here's where our story begins. In 1 Samuel uh, chapter 22, it says this, beginning in verse 1. It says, David departed from there, there being Gath in the, in the Philistine region. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard about it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Let me pray for us and we'll get into this. Lord, we thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you illuminate what we are reading and studying. So it's more than just data on pages. Let it be the living word to us, Lord. Let it shape us, transform us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So David is now in hiding in this region of Adullam, living in a cave. He is anointed, but he is rejected. He has an anointing, anointing upon him that he carries with him, but he is not walking in that whatsoever. He has no real authority politically in the nation. He has been rejected by Saul. He's been rejected by Saul's army. He's been, even been rejected by some of the people. But he's surrounding himself with some men. I want you to pay attention to who these men are. First, it says that it's his brothers and his household, of his father's household. We know that David had brothers. Those were the ones who were fighting against Goliath when David shows up. David's out here t- tending sheep, right? And he's not even old enough to be in the army yet. And his father says, take your brother some food. They're out there in the battle. So David takes some food. He takes some cheese and crackers and whatever he takes. And he goes and he gives them. And that's where he sees all of the stuff happening with the flesh. So we know he has older brothers. And it says that his brothers came and joined him. And everybody in his father's household has come to join him as well. And then it says this. Pay attention to this. It says all of those in distress, in debt, and those bitter in spirit. I can tell you... If I'm trying to raise up an army, those are not the three that I would want to come and and, and be with me. You know, those are like, that's like the wrong group of people, right? I mean, look, we're planning a church right now. We're in the midst of this, and we're thrilled because we're, all of you are just some of those amazing, gifted people in the world. It's like, this is the best group to plant with. Imagine if we were planning a church, but all we had are those who are distressed, who are just deeply in debt and discouraged by it, and by bitter in spirit. That's tough. It's tough to work with that. It's tough to work with those kind of people, but these are the ones, for some reason, that have come down and have joined David in this stronghold. And we say cave, it likely was sort of a larger, rocky, hidden area. It probably just wasn't a small, you know, huddle under the cave and keep warm. It was big enough. It had some substance. The Bible says there are 400 men with him. This is quite quite a sizable thing. See, it includes then, of these men, the Bible later tells us that it includes 30 renowned warriors, roughly 30 renowned warriors. We don't know exactly how many, 30, 32, 33, depending on what you look at. So we're going to read about them um, here in, 11, in, um, in 1 Chronicles 11 and 12. So we're in Samuel, we're going to flip over to Chronicles. Chronicles sort of tells this same kind of stories Uh, maybe just from a different perspective. So keep your finger right here. We're coming back. Flip over to Chronicles 12. 1 Chronicles 12. I want to read just a little bit about these men who have come to join David. These distressed, in debt, bitter in spirit kind of men. 1 Chronicles 12 says, Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag, while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either the left or the right hand. They were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. Goes on to list a bunch of names. He says, from the Gadites, in verse 8, from the Gadites there went over to David at the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty and experienced warriors, expert with shield and spear, whose faces were like the faces of lions and were swift as gazelles upon the mountains. Go to verse 14. These Gadites were officers of the army, and the least was a match for a hundred men, and the greatest for a thousand. And these men are not just strong and skilled warriors. They're also deeply committed to the cause of putting David on the throne. They're not just looking to pick a fight. 
They're not just mercenaries who will go wherever they are hired. They're not just sort of, you know, ambitious men who want to make a name. They have one purpose, and it says this. Look, in 1218, it says this. We are yours. This is what they say to him. We are yours, O David. We are with you, son of Jesse. In 1222, it says, day after day, men came to help David until he had a great army like the army of God. Verse 38 says, they came determined to make David king over all of Israel. So I want, you to, I want you to get your head around this. I want to get my head around this. David has been anointed king but rejected by Saul. He's in hiding. He's on the run. But for some reason, men are drawn to him as a leader. The distressed the in debt, the bitter in spirit, his brothers, his household, these mighty men who are skilled in battle are flocking day after day, more and more and more are joining him. He's got incredible influence. He has a powerful influence. He's not crowned. He's not the large, he doesn't have the largest army. He's not from nobility. But they see in David the future of their nation. They see in him the destiny of their own nation. And I, I, was, I was kind of reading through this this week, and I began to stop, and I, just, I began to see this in many ways. This is a snapshot of Jesus. This is a picture of who Jesus is. We know that sort of David is almost like a forerunner. It's like an archetype of who Jesus is. And I, I can just see this is, a, this is a hint in the Old Testament of what's to come. This one who has been anointed king but is not quite on the throne, who is on the run from the enemy, so to speak. It seems like he is. And he's drawing to himself all of the outcasts of society. And he's building up an army. And everybody who comes to him is under his influence. And they're determined to put him on the throne. And it's amazing to see that. It's a picture of the kingdom of Jesus. So here's, here's the fun story today. I love, I love what I'm about to read to you, all right? I'm excited about this. I'm more excited about this message than anything else I've done the entire time. Maybe a whole year. I don't know. I love this. All right. We're in 1 Chronicles 11. This is what it says in 15. It's a great story. Three, is that, is, is that right? Is it up here? Yeah, 15, okay. Three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David at the cave of Adullam when the army of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So I don't have a map. I wish I did, but if you can visualize it, let's pretend like you know, Jerusalem is right up here and Adullam is down here. The Philistines are kind of camped in this general area and, 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 and sort of in the region, and they are occupying, surrounding the, the town of Bethlehem. And we know that Bethlehem was David's home. It's his birthplace. It was his childhood. It's where he lived. It's where he grew up. He was born there. He knows every nook and hill and cram, you know, everything about the town. He knows it. He knows where to get the best-tasting food. He knows where to get the best-tasting water. And David is here in this cave day after day after day, day after day after day, and it says this. He says he's encamped here. Three of the 30 men are with him in this cave of Adullam. Verse 17, and David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Those of you that are from other areas besides Kentucky, 
Do you ever pine for the things back home? You ever pine for real New Mexico chili from Taos? You ever pine easily for real shrimp off the boats from Louisiana, crawfish, shrimp po'boy? I do. I long for those things. Things of my childhood, things of my past. David is here and David is saying, oh, guys, <laughs> all the wells are there. But I can tell you, that one right there, the one, that's the best tasting water. That's the coldest water in the world. It's almost sweet. And I would give anything for just a cup of that stuff. That's what he says. He says, David said, long ago, oh, someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that's by the gate. Listen to this, verse 18. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Somebody said, come on. That's awesome, right? Who doesn't want to have guys like this? And the story is so meaningful that it's told again at the end of 2 Samuel, at the end of his life, they're giving the last words of David in the very final chapters of 2 Samuel, they're recounting some of the great exploits from his life. And this story is included in there. As if to say, of all the stuff you need to know about David, here's one you need to know about. He was such an incredible king and such a credible ruler that they, look what these three men did. For him. I want to keep reading it. Verse 18, they, they drew water and they took it and they brought it to David, but David would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me before my God that I should do this. Shall I drink the lifeblood of these men? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. Therefore, he would not drink it. These things did the three mighty men. And we're gonna, I want to show you a couple other places in the verses that follow that make it clear that what just happened was not just incidental. It was so pivotal that it was etched in the memory of the writer of this forever and ever. Because look at what it says. Go down to verse 21. The, the writer is sort of telling some of the other exploits of the man. Oh, by the way, there are more than the three. Let me tell you about one. It says this. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of the 30, and he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them. One guy with a spear, 300 men, and won a name beside the three. I guess so, right? Come on. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander. But look at what it says. But he did not attain to the three. It's like, dude, you just killed 300 men. That's awesome. We're going to make you the commander of the army. But look, you're still not as awesome as these three over here. You know, you know what I'm saying? Look at verse 25. It says this. Um, uh, da, 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 da. Well, 22 and 23 talks about this. Another one, Benaiah, says, verse 23, struck down an Egyptian, a man of great stature, five cubits tall. Listen to this. The Egyptian had in his hand a spear like a weaver's beam, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of his hand, and killed him with his own weapon. That's awesome. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30 but he did not attain to the three. I'm reading this, I'm realizing these men, their legacy is not 
It's not on the battlefield. Their legacy is in the hidden place with David. Of all the stuff they do, that's what they're known for. Not for, I mean, they write them down. They tell us about all these awesome things that they do, but that's not what their legacy is. Their legacy is not in how many men they killed, how great they are in battle. It's in, their, it's in the hidden place of the king, with the king and hearing the king and responding to the king's desire and risking it all to go out. That's what their legacy is. And I'm realizing, saying, this is, this is incredible. This is exactly what Jesus is looking for. And here it is. Here's the big idea for today. Great risk comes from greater devotion. They all, they're all devoted. I, I, I have no doubt about that. They're all devoted to the king. They're all devoted to his cause. They're all devoted to, to, to what David stands for. They're all recognizing it. They're all willing to go out there and lay down their lives. But there is something about this story where these men have such a greater devotion and they're willing to do even crazier things, even greater risk. Great risk comes from greater devotion. And I felt like the Spirit of God was saying, don't miss the root of this. The root of this, I believe for me, is nearness to the King. Nearness to the King. I think that's where it begins. Psalm 73 says this, listen to these words. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who was unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, and I may tell of your works. Four years ago, when Cohen was, before Cohen was born, we were praying about a name. We were praying, what do we name our, what do we name our son? And I was stressing about it. I have a hard time ordering off a menu. You know what I'm saying? I can't choose a cheeseburger over whatever else, yet alone naming one of my children. It literally took months and months and months because it's like once this kid has the name, it's it. You know, and the Lord took me to, to, to Exodus 19. You will, be for, you will be for me a kingdom of priests in a holy nation. I knew a little bit of Hebrew to be dangerous, not a lot, but I knew that that word uh, priest in the plural was kohenim. The singular was kohen. And if you've ever met people of Jewish descent today with the last name of kohen, um, traditionally, they are from a priestly lineage, and that's the name Cohen means priest. But it, what it actually means is ones who are drawn near. I remember reading that some in the season before Cohen came along, teaching on that. I just said, Lord Jesus, let that be my son's legacy. Of all the things, Lord, that I could ask for, and this is what we pray over, I pray over all my children this. Let them be drawn near to you. I think, I think it begins with nearness. How do you know the king's heart? You're with him. You're with him on the battlefield. You're with him in the cave. You're close by his side. And nearness then leads to listening or to hearing, whatever you want to call it. Because here's what's something to remember. This was not a command on the battlefield. This was not a command from the king. There's no indication that David was saying this for somebody to actually do it. Everything indicates that he was just thinking out loud, right? You ever do that? Like, oh, I would kill for a Coke right now. Ugh. Ever said that? It's more than likely, that's what the Bible seems to indicate. This is what David was doing. He's thinking out loud. He's wishing out loud. The, the desire of his heart is just coming out verbally. He's not really wanting anybody. He knows it's impossible. He knows that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. 
with his little small band of armies to go invade the Philistine camp and just to get a stinking drink of water. That's absurd. He's just mouthing off. But the men hear it because they're near to him. They hear what he says. And they realize, guys, the king wants water. Not a command, but it's a desire of his heart. There's a big difference. I think as believers, as the church, we've been just so ingrained that all we do is we follow the commands. Do the command. What is the minimum that I have to do to be acceptable before God? What does Jesus tell us to do? Those are all good. That's the minimum though, right? What if we could be in a position where we, we move beyond commands into the desire of Jesus' heart where we're so close to him that we're hearing what he really wants to do in the whisper places and we're saying, God, I want to do those. I don't want to just like, you know, do the bare minimum, God. I, w- I want to do really what you're dreaming of that you don't think anybody can do. What if his church could become that? Not, not merely, we need to move past merely keeping God's law Move into seeking his heart. I don't say us. I don't, I, I, look, I'm talking to me. You guys are doing this. We're doing this together. So from nearness leads to listening. Listening to leads to risk. Risk. Great risk comes from greater devotion. The Bible says that they broke through the camp. It doesn't say that they snuck around the side in the middle of the night. That's what I would do, by the way. I'd wait until, like, you know, middle of the night. I don't want to be seen. I don't want to be heard. I'll sneak in. I'll get some water and I'll go. No, it says that these men, they broke through the camp. And I can just imagine, like, however they did this, they had the the element of surprise. They're screaming. They're yelling. They're they're swinging their swords. They're aiming their things. They're going as fast as they can. And one guy's furiously getting the water up out of the well and the other guys are fighting off. Who knows how they did this? The point is it was incredible risk. It likely would have cost them their own lives. But it was worth it. What if we could bring a cup of water to our king? How awesome would that be? So from nearness leads to listing, listing leads to risk. Risk leads to reward. I'm, I've been thinking a lot about this phrase that he called, that David calls it. He calls it the lifeblood of men. The lifeblood of men. And just the astonishment on his face as these three warriors make their way back into the tent with big skins full of water with big whatever jar however they did it I don't know and the astonished look on David's face as if to say what in the world have you done and I can't help but believe that David just began to weep and to sob at what might have happened at the risk that his men put themselves into just to fulfill his own heart. He says, guys, I can't drink this. This comes at too high of a cost. And he pours it out on the ground, very, sort of very symbolic, very reminiscent of the drink offering that's poured out at the temple. And my mind is going a thousand miles an hour thinking about Jesus, thinking about the cup in his hand and what that symbolizes and, you know, just about how the cup, we're going to take that this morning, we're going to celebrate communion this morning and he holds the cup and says, this is my blood and the cost, the cost of filling this cup up, not with water, but with his own blood. That cost came at great risk, it came at a great cost, his own life.
Great risk comes from greater devotion. I think, what am I, 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 I'm asking myself that this week. What am I giving my life for? And there's been a lot of, I don't know, we're, we're in a weird time. You know, you ever, we're in a weird time where we, people talk about, oh, I, I don't want religion, I just want Jesus. I don't want the church, I just want Jesus. I'm not serving a cause, I'm just serving the creator. And that sounds clever, like it would make a good little, you know, Instagram post. And we've all been guilty of that. I have too. And I know what people mean. People, what the people mean is really, it's, it's really about, um, it's, a, it's about a relationship with a living God, not just an abstract set of, of values. But every king has a kingdom. The creator does have a cause. We are to align ourselves with a cause. We are to align ourselves and commit ourselves to a kingdom, not just to this person abstractly. We're to commit ourselves to everything he wants to do in the world. Jesus is establishing his kingdom, and he's calling all men, all women, come, join me. And the cool thing is, is like, look, everybody's welcome. If we, t- if we take this story, everybody's welcome. Distressed? It's me. In debt? Right here? Bitter in spirit? Some days? You bet. Right here? And Jesus says, come on. (laughs) Come on. We're putting an army together. We're raising an army up. He's been anointed, and he's establishing his throne. The enemy is on the run. What are we giving our lives for? To what cause are we pouring ourselves out? To what kingdom are we raising up sons and daughters? been having some really good conversations this weekend with some, with some friends, some of you here, about just discipleship and children and what the Lord has called us to do, what Jesus has called us to do. What if we could have, what if we could have this kind of mindset as a church? Just basic keeping of the law, that's good, but what if we could hear God? And teach our kids to hear God. Teach our kids to be near to him and to hear what he wants and to do it. Man, I'm convinced that's, that's groundbreaking stuff. That's life-changing stuff. Let me pray for us. And we're going to do some ministry and communion here. Lord Jesus, we, Lord, we're, we're in awe of who you are. You are the king You have been anointed, you have been crowned, and your kingdom is is advancing, your kingdom is on the move. It's here and it's coming, both at the same time. And you're calling men and women to stand, to align ourselves, to say, my life for the kingdom's cause, my family for the kingdom's cause, my future for the kingdom's cause because nothing else matters. Lord, I want to say that this morning. I know I represent a church of people that will say that this morning too. We're not the strongest. We're not the most talented. We're not the most influential. But we love our king. We want to be near to him and here the desires of his heart. We want to risk it all and 
give you the reward that's due your name. Father, would you raise us up? Would you raise up our children? Would you raise up our sons and our daughters to be mighty men, mighty women? Lord, let them be renowned, not for what they accomplish, but for their radical devotion at any cost to you. Father, I realize what that might mean. I realize, Lord, that it means that I have to let my children go and obey you. It might mean, Lord, that they go to the mission field and they don't come back. They may move away, give their lives to the kingdom on the other side of the world. I realize that, Jesus. I realize that they may not achieve all that the world says that they're supposed to achieve. I realize, Lord, that they may be mocked and scorned, Lord, by friends, colleagues. But let them live their lives for your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be a church that raises up an army that lives our life for your kingdom. Mighty men, mighty women near to you in a hidden place with you waiting to hear what cry of your heart comes out ready to grab a sword and a shield and charge into battle in risk because you're you're worthy of the reward stand together church we're going to worship we're going to sing here and after that I'll give us some instructions for communion and closing ministry time